Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Massive Monday podcast for you. Not one, but two. Jayhawk Grade's going to be joining us. Rex Walters helped lead KU to a Final Four in 1993. Scott Pollard was a member of one of the best Kansas teams of the past 30 years. In 1997, both of those guys went on to have very successful pro careers, and both of those guys will be joining us on this episode of Waving the Wheat. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review. I think you're really going to like this episode. This episode of Waving the Weed is brought to you by Home Field Apparel, premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis. It's incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs. They are in the middle of the big new Saturday season three, where they launch a new school on their site every Saturday for eight straight weeks. This is currently week seven, and the school they're launching is, of course, none other than the Kansas Jayhawks. People are always asking me, why are you wearing these hoodies and t-shirts with these weird, obscure mascots? Why are you wearing a hoodie with a blue donkey? I say, it's not a blue donkey. It's an ore digger. Colorado School of Mines. Look it up, dude. Oh, Slippery Rock. Where's that at? Did you go? Dude, I don't know where Slippery Rock's at. I've never even heard of him. I just saw a picture of a rock wearing a fur coat, and I said, I got to have that. Listen, Home Field Apparel is the most comfortable gear you're ever going to wear. And I'm not just saying that because they're a sponsor. I'm saying it because I have been rocking them since day one. And I always go up to people and I say, hey, touch it. Feel it. Go on. Go on. Feel the inside of this. Feel how comfortable this hoodie is. And they'll say, dude, no, I don't want to touch your stuff. Please stop. I'm willing to make you uncomfortable just to prove to you how comfortable home field apparel is. I've always liked the obscure, rare mascots and rocking them and starting conversations. But now, with the Kansas collection, it's back to the basics. It's back to the team that I want to rock. The Kansas collection is going to have 14 pieces of apparel in the collection, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, all vintage marks. You know your favorite old logos for KU. Now you can rock them in the most comfortable gear known to man. And because you're a listener of this podcast, new customers can get 15% off their first purchase from Homefield when you use the code NICK. That's N-I-C-K at checkout 
at homefieldapparel.com. That's 15% off your first purchase from Homefield when you use the code Nick at checkout at homefieldapparel.com. I'm not going to go too deep here on the monologue, which may seem a little bit odd because KU just lost a big game to Baylor down in Waco in a game that after 10 minutes you felt like they may run away with, but it turns out these games are 40 minutes, and just because you build a big lead doesn't mean you are guaranteed to walk out with a win in a hostile road environment in the Big 12. I'm not sure anything changed about my perception or about the reality of Kansas based off that one game. You've probably heard by now all of the top six teams in the AP poll lost on Saturday. So in the reality of where Kansas stands, national ranking, bracketology, they're still in line to be a one seed. They're still probably going to be a top six or seven team when the polls come out sometime today. By the time you're listening to this, the polls may have already came out. But the re- the actual reality of Kansas has not changed. But in the minutia, in the micro, I'm not sure much has changed either. KU lost to Baylor 80-70 to in large part because Baylor went small for the first time essentially all season. Jonathan Chamuchachua went out a couple of weeks ago. That was a huge hit to Baylor's front court. Since then, Flo Thamba, who was a guy playing about 16, 17 minutes a game, a seven-footer, the big guy, has turned into a guy who's had to play 30-plus minutes a game. And he was outstanding, had a career-high 18 points, got whatever he wanted inside against KU. That's kind of the story of the season for Kansas. The fact that they have shoddy interior defense. When everybody's playing super sound, disciplined defense, and you're not going up against a team that has super skilled bigs, KU's been able to hold their own defensively. And you thought with JTT out, who was their most efficient offensive big man, this may be an opportunity to hit Baylor where it hurts. Because as good as Thamba's been this season, he's not a great offensive player. And it just felt like he was being stretched a little thin. A guy going from 16 minutes a game to 30 minutes a game. How sustainable is that? Well, as it turns out, Scott Drew had a counterpunch. And I'm not sure if he had this planned going into the game or it's something that he fell upon after Baylor found themselves down early. Jeremy Sohan, the freshman, comes in, has the game of his life. 17 points, 5 rebounds in 31 minutes. Baylor played small ball and KU did not have an answer for it. They tried a few different things but nothing worked. They got whatever they wanted inside, and that is how they found themselves being down early to winning by double digits. They didn't have a good answer for for Baylor going small ball. Like That is why you give a major tip of the hat to Scott Drew. It's not that he outcoached Bill Self. I hate that we do this where it's, oh, so this guy got outclassed. This guy got outcoached. Scott Drew had a, a gamble that paid off, and KU didn't have an answer for it. Even if you want to say, well, then they should have matched Baylor going small with going small by themselves. Or or what about the idea that if Baylor's going to go small, you make them pay on the other end of the court by getting whatever you want inside. And KU couldn't do that either. That's been the Jayhawks' bread and butter all season long, is getting easy buckets inside, whether it be by opening up driving lanes for Ochai and Jalen and Christian, or just simply feeding the ball to Big Dave they have feasted on getting interior buckets. I don't know if uh, it, part of this is due to the funky lineups that we saw from KU. You saw these weird lineups with Remy and Yesifu on the court next to, I mean, Jalen Coleman-Lands was out there. Mitch was out there. Maybe you're trying to steal minutes. You're playing four games in eight days because of that extra game against TCU. You play TCU on Tuesday, then again on Thursday. Then you finish the season senior night against Texas on Saturday. So with that Baylor game added in, that is four games in eight days, and you really don't need to be 
hamstrung going into the Big 12 tournament when you would like to be as fresh and healthy as you could possibly be. This Kansas team is going to go as far as these starters are going to take them. I understand wanting to steal minutes. I don't think that's what was happening on Saturday. It's weird. I think Bill Self always sees the big picture, but also in a game against Baylor in Waco, college game day, I don't think that was the situation where he was trying to steal minutes. I think he was just trying to find something that worked. He saw a lineup that he wasn't expecting to see and just kind of scrambled and couldn't find a good answer. And, and maybe that's to the next point about KU. The other reality that hasn't changed, which is that this is going to be a super lineup matchup dependent team. I went into it thinking that if you go up against an Auburn, a Kentucky, a Gonzaga, you know, the team with elite big men, Purdue, in the NCAA tournament, that Kansas is going to have a really tough time. Because as good as they've been at scoring inside on offense, they've been equally as bad at, at stopping opposing teams from scoring inside. And that was very evident against Baylor on Saturday. I didn't think that was the type of matchup that would really kill Kansas. But it's going to be super specific with how hamstrung you are in that front court rotation. You just don't have the bodies to match whatever the opposing team is trying to do. I think Dave has really settled into a role that wasn't as evident because that was not the good Dave. I thought you needed a good Dave to beat Baylor on Saturday. You didn't get good Dave. I thought there were opportunities for them to go to him more in the second half for him to get looks inside when Baylor was playing small. It just didn't happen. A quick aside on Remy Martin. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least make mention of his return after sitting out for about a month. The first reports came from some of the beat reporters down there that said he was out on the court warming up. And then I saw the tweet from CJ Moore. When you're wondering about this guy who has not been playing because of a knee injury, right? A pain tolerance issue. And then you have CJ Moore saying that uh, Remy Martin was attempting a 360 dunk in warm-up. Sounds like that knee's okay. So. Here's the deal with Remy. You look at the final box score, and if you didn't watch the game, you, you wouldn't be talking about Remy because he played 11 minutes, scored five points, and went two of three. If you did watch the game, you would have saw that both of those buckets came in the first half. One of them was on a, a pretty deep three where they just weren't kind of coming out and guarding him. The second one was the prototypical Remy Martin play, the reason why you brought him in, where he sort of drives, sucks the defense in, then all of a sudden finds himself wide open for little fadeaway seven-foot jumper. And it, there, there seemed to be this sense that, oh, that, yeah, there we go. There's the, there's the offensive infusion that, that Remy brings. But I couldn't help but notice that those were really the only two things that he brought to the table for Kansas in those 11 minutes. I'm not, he didn't lose because of Remy Martin, okay? I don't want to make this, the, this idea at all. But I know what's about to happen here, and... I'm just not gonna. I'm not gonna be a part of it. What's about to happen is the idea that okay, well maybe you just sort of, sort of kind of getting him, you know, back into the flow and knocking the rust off, and you know the chemistry hasn't been there, but maybe you can build it up a little bit to where he's a guy who can give you 15 plus minutes a game in the tournament. And the reason why I feel like this is coming is because everybody's saying it. I know Lafonso, and I don't have anything against any of these guys. Some of whom I've talked to, some of whom I haven't, but. You know, LaFonso Ellis on ESPN Game Day said it that uh, this team can't be its full potential without him. Um, I've heard some other national guys. I think even Shulman and Billis talked about this a little bit during the broadcast that, you know, this is a guy who kind of takes Kansas to the next level, takes them and, and turns them into a Final Four caliber team. I mean, if you've watched five Kansas games this year and Remy Martin's played in three of them, maybe that's your interpretation of it. But if you've watched 
25, 27. Why don't even, I have no idea how many games KU's played this year. What is it? Uh, what's their record right now? They are 23 and 5, 28 games. There we go. I would have gotten the math eventually. If you've watched all of KU's games, I don't know how you could come to the conclusion that this team needs Remy Martin because this team does not need extra offense. They're the number four offense in the country. Where they struggle is defensively, and Remy Martin got picked on all night. Actually, I don't even know if he got picked on because every time he got scored on, which was virtually every possession he was on the floor, it wasn't because Baylor was pointing to him saying, let's get the ball to the guy who Remy Martin's guarding. It's that just in the general flow of their offense, the person who Remy Martin was assigned to found themselves wide open or they just had the ball and drove right past him. It doesn't matter if it's on-ball defense where he uh, seemingly has bad instincts or is a step slow or is just not engaged or if it's off-ball defense where he gets caught sleeping on every single possession. Remy Martin is a downright liability on defense. I've heard people try to sugarcoat it, and I don't understand why. I don't understand what it is that we're trying to accomplish with this guy. It's not just that he, you know, he's, he's not a, a super great defender, that he's not a plus defender. He is a liability on defense. That's not chemistry. That's not rust. This is who he's been. This is who he was at Arizona State, and I'm not saying this to bury the guy. It's just the reality of the situation. All right, Remy Martin is not going to carve out a role on this team unless he can drastically become a completely different player on the defensive end of the court than what we've seen for the first four and a half seasons of his college career. This team will be at its best when their starting five is playing as much as humanly possible. So maybe that's why you play Joe a little bit more right now. Maybe it's why you play Remy and Jalen Coleman-Lands and Zach Clements and Mitch Lightfoot a little bit more this, these next three games because you've got three games coming up in a span of, what, five days? You need your guys fresh. So if there were ever a time to play these bench guys a little bit more, it might be these next two games against TCU. But after that, Big 12 tournament, NCAA tournament, you're rolling with the big boys because it's too late in the game to try and expect somebody to become someone they haven't been at all this season. Rex Walters, former Kansas guard, had a successful NBA career before getting into coaching. Now he's doing some broadcasting with FS1 and Westwood One. I want to start first with your Kansas career, Rex. How does a kid from Northern California wind up on a bad Northwestern team for a couple of years and then find himself playing for Roy Williams in Lawrence, Kansas? What were those interactions like, and how did you wind up playing for Kansas? So, yeah. Northwestern was my best offer. I, I had Santa Clara. I had University of San Francisco. I had Pepperdine. I visited Pepperdine, Santa Clara, and then Northwestern. My goal was to get to Stanford, and I wasn't a good enough student. I couldn't get into school there. They called me a couple weeks before the official visits that I couldn't get into school. So Northwestern was the best option at that time. For my mind, I, my father grew up in Illinois. I always heard about Midwest basketball and how great it is in the Big Ten. So that I just took that as a challenge. Um, the school's a great school. Evanston's a great town. Nothing but great things to say about that place and the people there. But we weren't winning. I had two years left. I was planning on just going back home, maybe Santa Clara, maybe USF. I thought maybe Stanford, I, they could get me in because I went to Northwestern. I had decent success as a student. Uh, but my AAU coach who knew a guy named Bill Duffy. Bill Duffy is a very powerful agent. He played at Minnesota and then played at Santa Clara. He was very good friends with Kevin Stallings. And so Kevin Stallings was the assistant at Kansas at the time. They were just coming off some, some, you know, recruiting violations from the previous regime, you know, coach Brown, they won a national championship, but the program was placed on probation. So there was some restrictions there. And 
because Kevin Stallings had coached at Purdue and I had played well in the Big Ten, when they watched, they said this guy might be able to be an option for us. So after my AU coach called them, they were interested. I talked to Coach Stallings a few times. He's a very good recruiter. Then talked to Coach Williams, uh, just such a mild-mannered, you know, just a really neat person to talk to, visited the campus. Um, and, yeah, then that's how I got there. I, I didn't think I'd get to go to Kansas. I'd watched Kansas that entire year that year. They were a great team led by a guy named Kevin Pritchard, Jeff Geldner, Pekka Markin, and Mark Randall. They surprised a lot of teams. I think it was either Coach Williams' third season, and they really were starting to take off. They played so fast. They really shared the ball. They really guarded, which I wasn't all that in love with, but they really guarded as well. And so when I had a chance to go there, to me it was a no-brainer. I was excited about it. Didn't like the fact that I wouldn't be as close to home as I thought I would be but knew there was going to be a great chance that we'd have a, have a, a team that could, you know, win a big eight championship. And at that time they hadn't really broken through. I think they broke through the year I was sitting out and won a big 10 champ, big eight championship, maybe the year before, and then have a chance to play, play in the NCAA tournament, which was a big deal to me. I, I really wanted to play in the NCAA tournament. I didn't know all that would take to get there. I didn't understand how hard I would have to work and all that goes into it. But yeah, it was, it was a no brainer to go to Kansas. The story of Roy winding up as the head coach at Kansas is really interesting because he was a relative unknown. He was an assistant coach before they hired him. And it's funny now to look back on the career that he had and he sort of has this aura about him, one of the greatest to ever do it. And I would imagine near the tail end of his career or even the tail end of his time at Kansas, he probably carried some of that weight with him. But by the time he was recruiting you, what was your perception of him? Did you know much about Roy Williams at that time? Honestly, I didn't, but it's kind of like when you're a coach, you watch a team and they tell you what you need to work on. Well, when I was a player, I watched that team and I said, that's telling me a lot about their coach. The way that they played told me a lot about him and the level of detail and how hard they played and the fact that, you know, n- nothing against any of those guys, but, but they didn't look like the most athletic team, but they played fast. They played really fast. They really shared the ball. So I knew this guy could coach. That, that, that was obvious to me. And the way they played defensively, again, not great necessarily team speed, but they were pre- pressuring the basketball, denying one pass away. Like, it was amazing to me that they played that hard. So that said a lot. When I met him, he was very mild-mannered, very, um, you know, not a salesman at all. I think he – under-promised and over-delivered. I think that that's why that over time he had so much success with players because word of mouth, yeah, you're going to work really hard. This guy's going to really do everything he can to help you be the best player and help your team be the best team they could be. I thought that was really impressive to me, but really it was watching them play that sold me on it, more so than Coach Williams because – when they play that hard, this guy must be really, must really be able to coach. So that was, that was really the selling point for me. And I saw a guy like Jeff Gellner. Jeff Gellner looks a little bit like me. He had a pretty good career at Kansas. Kevin Pritchard, he looks a little bit like me. I might be able to have some success there. So um, those were some of the factors that really played into it more so than coach Williams. I did to me, he was like, uh, and I wouldn't say this to his face, but he reminded me of uh, that droopy dog, 
cartoon character. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like had a little had a little draw when he talked. So, um, but when I played for him, I realized that, that there's nothing mild mannered about him as a coach during practice and during games. It's very intense at that point. It's probably not fair to ask you to do this, but if you were to boil it down to one thing that made him so good, so great, so special as a coach, what comes to mind? The fact that he cares that much. He, he really does. He cares about it. I talked to him two days ago. I still, to this day, I'm 51 years old, and I call him when I need help. You know what I mean? When I need advice. Um, that, that's, that's such a huge thing and such a thing that shines through, even in the recruiting process, how much he genuinely will look after you. His entire, he's retired now, right? He just got off the, the golf course with Randy Towner and, and another buddy of his, and you probably know Randy from Albemarle, right? He hangs out with the same. He's very loyal like extremely loyal, caring. And I think that thing and why players play so hard from, yes, there was a, there was a healthy fear of God of him. When I played for him, he, he scared me a little bit, but I also knew he genuinely cared. And so I think it also dipped into his preparation for practice, how detailed it was, how organized he was, how he's prepared for every single situation in a game and in a practice, all because I think he really cares so much about the players, the team, the program. It's really, really important to him. So going back to that year you set out, KU goes to the Final Four. Now they they lost some some big-time players. I mean, Mark Randall is one of the best players in the country. He graduates, and I'm sure you had an idea of what the roster was going to look like heading into what was your redshirt junior year, but... Was there pressure on you knowing that, okay, wow, this team's one of the best in the country. I had to sit out. Not only am I going to have to start playing, but there's this expectation that we're going to maintain this level of excellence. And I, I know you weren't the new guy per se because you were around. You, you were on campus, but new on the court. Like, What was that sort of like trying to do your thing and in also ingratiate yourself into the team and and keep up the expectations that you're going to be one of the best teams in the country. So it's a double-edged sword. So we had a guy named Sean who's really good, who also played my position. He was actually my roommate the year I sat out. God rest his soul, he's passed away. He was a phenomenal, phenomenal player, like one of the best pickup players that I that you could play against in in a in a college setting. So that was that that had got me some fear. Okay fear that I might not get to play as much as I want to play. So that really helped me. It really drove me because we would go at it every single day in pickup in the spring and the summer. And then, you know, in practice, I also had a healthy confidence because that was a final four team and the second unit every once in a while could beat them. And when they beat them, I think I had a pretty good, I was a pretty good reason why they would beat them. Okay, and it, we didn't do it a lot, but we, we, we could get them. So I knew I was capable as well. So I had a healthy fear that I have to fight for my position or fight for a position to play that much. And then I also had an unbelievable confidence because I knew I could, I could play against and beat those guys. I mean, that was a good team. You had Adonis Jordan as, a, as the point guard. You had Terry Brown, who was the leading uh, – I really – I think it was the leading scorer on the team. Mark Randall, Mike Maddox. And I'm trying to figure out, she's Louise, who are the small? Oh, Alonzo Jameson. Yeah. I mean, that's a really yeah. good team. Alonzo Jameson can guard really one through five. Like, he was a phenomenal defender. That was a Final Four team, that you know, national championship game team. 
had a chance to win it all. So, yeah, I, the fact that we could I we I could help that team compete and beat that team with mostly you know freshmen and walk-ons in practice that gave me a good healthy confidence. But it was difficult. There's no question. Like habits for me had to change defensively. I was completely and totally lost out there pressuring the basketball. That that wasn't something I did a whole lot in high school or at Northwestern. We played a lot of zone at Northwestern. Denying one pass away, uh, sprinting back on defense. <laughs> you know, those were all things. And just shot section. I, I truly believe that every shot that I took because of confidence that I had was the right shot. Well, I had to I had to tone that down a little bit and play more of a team game. So that it was it was a, a big adjustment. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. It, it no longer happens today. So I, I had the benefit of truly my first game. And Sean Tunsil did not play the next year. So I always say this when I go out and recruiting, when I'm recruiting for a mid-major, like I, I was an NBA player, a 16th pick in the draft, and I might not have started on that team as a junior. That's how good Kansas was. So I use that as a positive, right? But Sean wasn't with the team the next year. I become a starter. I become the big eight newcomer of the year. I become a first team all big eight guy. And I become a guy that that becomes number one on other teams scouting reports, which I really enjoyed that. So it worked out really, really good. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard somebody say that they were super excited to have to sit out a year when they were transferring. But you've got an interesting perspective because not only did you play and transferred and had to sit out that year, You've also coached in college. You are now an analyst. So you've seen this from different perspectives as you see the new freedom of movement in college basketball. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on it as you kind of see this new era of college hoops sort of being ushered in here on the fly? For my generation, right? I don't think it's a great thing. I, I love watching Tim Duncan play for four years. I love watching David Robinson play for, I love watching Danny Manning play for four years. Right. You're, you're just not going to see that anymore. Number one for guys going to the pro, but also you'll get guys that will leave at the drop of a hat. Things aren't working out the way they want or they want a better situation or they want to play on a bigger stage, which rightfully that's what I wanted. Right. I, I had to pay my dues to do that. Uh, I think it makes the continuity of a team like I love the fact that that. Danny Manning, if he walks into Lawrence, right, everyone knows who he is. He has that because he played there for four years. He's an icon in Lawrence, Kansas. You know, the same thing with a lot of guys that play at North Carolina, play at Kansas, whatever. But, you know, I don't feel that because I only played there two years. You know what I mean? And, and so now these guys that are going for one year or going for two years, they never have that, in my opinion, true sense of being part of a program. I feel that way about Coach Williams, right? And, I, and I, I feel that way about Kansas. But when you're a four-year player and you've gone through every stage of becoming a man as a four-year player at a university, you become a part of the fabric of that university. The college game is going to miss that, I think. You know, if, if Christian Braun ends up staying all four years, he becomes even bigger part of the fabric. It's not just because... He went off and did great things in the NBA. No, he's a part of the fabric of that university forever. So I think those are really cool things that a lot of schools are going to miss out on now. And that's at every level. Even if you're, I coached at Valpo, even if you coached at Valpo, you know, Bryce Drew played four years at Valpo. He's an icon there, right? You can be not a great player, but play four years and you have a foundation of people that really know you and really care about you 
and believe that you believe in, in that institution's mission plan, if that makes sense. And that's going to that's gonna be lost a little bit because of these rules. So as we're about a, a couple of weeks away from the start of the NCAA tournament, what's sort of the at the top of the checklist, if you were to make one, for the teams that you're going to look at and say, okay, that's the type of team I'm buying into, whether it's style of play, whether it's personnel, you know, who they like to play through, leadership, any of those things. Like, what's at the top of the list for you? Well, I think great guard play is, is always really important because that's where every play starts, right? And every play starts with a guy bringing the ball up the floor, right? Also setting the table defensively for your team. I think your, your point guard and, and guard play is just really, really important. I think another thing that's always important is a defensive mindset. That's why we had some success at Kansas when I was there. We had a defensive mindset that we're going to defend and we're going to rebound at a very high level. Uh, and then the third thing I would say is offensive efficiency, like teams that share the basketball, move the basketball, make defenses, make mistakes. You can play fast, right? I'm not saying you shouldn't shoot quick, but if you're shooting quick, shooting the shots that you know you should take and make, and can make that then those are the teams that are really, really scary to me. And you can get your upsets. You can get your mid major programs that can upset a high major program because of their guard play, their defensive mindset, and their ability to make quality decisions over and over again, offensively that now gives them a chance to beat teams that maybe don't have those same talents that maybe have, they don't have that those same habits although they may be more talented. What's so funny is I look at how the modern, the best teams in the NBA, right? They've got point guards who are scoring threats. They can put it on the deck, go to the rim, finish at the rim, but they're also great shooters as well. And it, and it feels like a modern thing, but then I was just looking at the, uh, the, the stat sheet from your, your junior season, your first season where you were playing at Kansas. And it's like, that's what your backcourt was, right? It was you and Adonis Jordan, you guys were guards, you were point guards, or I don't know how you would categorize your, your play from a positional standpoint, but you guys were scorers, and that's been a big part of the conversation for this Kansas team. Do you think that's a necessity? Do you view that as a necessity, or is that just a product of the way that the NBA has evolved to where we just have this expectation that if you're going to be the guy bringing the ball up or initiating the offense, then you need to be able to score consistently? Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think the more important thing is, can he defend at a high level? Can he set his, his team's defense? And does he, is he a good decision maker, right? Like, I think of Mateen Cleave, they won a national championship. He wasn't a great scorer, right? Wasn't even a great shooter, but what did he do? He defended, he defended his tail off, and that dude uh, made really good decisions with the basketball. And when you do that, you always give your team a chance to win. And so... Uh, I don't think it's necessary when you've got two wings like Christian Brown and you've got, uh, uh, oh, I always pronounce the name, Oshay Awaji, right? Ocha, you got, yeah. You've got two guys. Yeah, yeah. you want to get those guys the basketball. So I don't think that's as important. I think that defending at a high level and your decision-making by the guy that, that, that has the ball in his hands the most, those are more important than necessarily scoring. Uh, in the NBA, it's a, a little different game, but you can still be highly effective even with a point guard, I mean, John Stockton wasn't a great scorer. What did he do? He defended, and he was a great, great decision maker. And on top of that, he he was one of the best at big shot basketball. He made big shots. So I don't know if it's as important in, in uh, college basketball and at times in the NBA. I mean, yes, 
you know, Steph Curry really isn't the point guard for Golden State. I mean, Draymond Green is really the point power forward. The ball's in his hands a lot, and he's a great decision maker and a great defender. So, um, you know, that that that's where I would argue or debate with you on that a little bit. I think Kansas has a chance, and that's the whole reason. You know, what Bill does is he gets them to defend, he gets them to rebound, and they become a really sound decision-making offensive team. And that's why they're always in the hunt every single, and they've got great talent. Yeah. And I wasn't, and I'm not necessarily making that point. I think it's just my natural reaction. I think it's for a lot of people's natural reaction, because when you watch the best player, the best guards in the NBA, that's what you're used to seeing. And, and, and a lot of the best teams, you see these guys where, and maybe this is more about being positionless because you just mentioned Draymond Green, which is a perfect example. How many big guys in the NBA are there that, are six eight six nine can play one through four and they can also bring the ball up and initiate offense. But at the college level, it is less positionless and more maybe rigid and defined in what you expect to see. I, I, it's funny. It's we, we talk about you know the 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 post game. You watch Big Ten basketball. It's all about the posts for for the majority of the teams. You talk about Ohio State. You talk about Michigan State. You talk about Michigan. You talk about Indiana. They play through their posts in a major, major way, and that's why they're so efficient. It's funny. In the NBA, they've gone away from that. And I'll I'll say this. I I think a lot of times you want to – I see a lot of coaches, and and I'm not necessarily like this, but a lot of coaches want players that will – and it, it, it makes sense. They want players that can make plays outside of the system, right? They can do things on their own, right? And, and and that's why you got so many guards in the NBA that they can make so many plays on their own. They don't need a lot of help. They don't need a lot of structure. They just need really good spacing, right? And shooters around them so they can get to the basket or they can get to their offensive game. Uh, I know you've seen a lot of teams this year. There's no, I don't think, any Baylor or Gonzaga from last year where it Clearly, a couple of teams, Michigan, Illinois, who were cut above the rest. Who is the best team that you've seen, either if it's a, a team you've seen in person or just uh, from watching? Well, you know, I do watch a lot. of. I watch more Big Ten than anything right now. I've I, I watched pretty much every team in the Big Ten. I don't know if they're – Purdue is very good. They've got two big posts that can both score the basketball. The, the crazy thing is they can't really play them together because I don't think Matt Painter likes them on the floor together defensively. you got to play in more drops. You've got to play more uh, you know, against skilled fours. That would be really tough. And then they've got a guy that's you know a lottery pick in Jaden Ivey. So they've got a chance. They've never broken through. It's funny, Purdue, for all of their great success, they've never broken through really to be like a Final Four national championship power. They've been a great Big Ten power. This might be the year for them that they can do that. I haven't watched Auburn as, as much. I don't watch Gonzaga much at all, but they're very good. I've, I, I've watched Chet Holmgren play a lot when he was in high school, really talented. Uh, you know, they, they got a really good team. They've got good, solid guard play. They've got the benefit because they're so much better, and I don't mean this as a, a negative to the West Coast Conference, but they're so much better talent-wise that they can continue to, to develop their younger players over the course of the season so guys can get better as well. But their talent is so good, and they don't really get tested. They test themselves in the non-conference, and then you know maybe they'll have the battle in Seattle on a good year, and they'll test themselves again. But you know St. Mary's, although Randy does a phenomenal job, 
They don't have the athleticism of Gonzaga. So Gonzaga scared. I watched Baylor put on an absolute clinic against uh, Villanova, and I was like, this is the best team in basketball. And then they've really faltered since then. And Kansas is, is you know, Bill's done a great job and has, has, again, got Kansas back on top. So, you know, I think Kansas will be really, really good. Their, their post-play will be a, a bigger question of mine when they go against the elite elite. You know, McCormick's got to play great against the elite elite for them. And, and not necessarily just scoring, but just defending his position, defend, rebounding, and then being able to score on the blocks a little bit. So, I mean, there, there's no clear-cut favorite in my mind. I think you're absolutely right on that. There's some teams that are unbelievably talented. Duke is phenomenally talented. But I always worry about young teams uh, except for maybe the Fab Five, who never won a national championship, right? It's really it's really hard for those younger players to understand and have the like. When I was a senior, it was everything to me to get to the Final Four. I wasn't thinking about the NBA. I wasn't concerned about the NBA. I was like, that will take care of itself, right? If we win. Whereas these younger players now, that's not necessarily the case. They know they're going in the first round. They're just trying to make sure their stock stays up. And so is the NCAA tournament, the final four, the end all be all for them. They don't have that finality, that need to win, right? As much as maybe players that are juniors and seniors and they're finishing their college career. How strongly did you consider going pro after your first year at Kansas? It's funny. I, you know, you heard rumors that, Hey, you could be maybe a top 10 pick. I, I heard those rumors. I, I never even thought about it though. Honestly, I, really? I wanted to get to a final four. Yeah. I wanted to get to a final four. I wanted to have a chance to win a national champ. I thought that was the best team in the nation. My junior, I thought we were the best team in the nation. Alonzo Jameson uh, uh, was a phenomenal defender. Adonis was a really good point guard. We had a guy uh, in, in Richard Scott, that was a great post player. Eric Pauly, really, really good, skilled five man. We had a good, solid bench. We were really good that year. I just didn't see how anyone could beat us. So when we lost to UTEP, that made me even hungrier, right, to get back and then to have a chance to win a national champ. So I never crossed my mind. It might have hurt me. I, I think I dropped. I hurt my ankle before the season. Uh, I was playing basically on one leg the first two months of the season. People were saying all kinds of crazy things about my game had dropped off. The wife that I love and I've been married to for 26 years, they were trying to blame her and Lawrence that I fell in love and lost my edge. Are you serious? Like none of that was, yeah, I, I, none of that was the case. I, I, I had a severely, like a severely sprained ankle. I was wearing basically a, a soft cast on my right ankle, which was my jumping foot. So I didn't have the explosion, the speed and quickness that I had the year before. And it took the whole season for me to finally get that back by about the middle of the big eight, I was off of the brace. I was, you know, playing a little bit more, but still not quite as explosive. My junior year, I was, I was very athletic. My senior year, if you watch the tape, I wasn't nearly as quick, nearly as fast, nearly as fearless as I was my junior year. But yet you still had a ton of success and I'm sure you, I'm sure you're glad you came back for that senior year. Like, I mean, I, I'm a 100% like to go to a final four, uh, I wouldn't have met my wife. I met my wife before my senior year uh, to have a chance to win a, a national championship, to win a big eight championship. Those are all. And, and, and so, yeah, but there's no question. I don't regret it for a second. I had a great NBA, not a great, I had a good NBA career, seven years, but overseas, all of that is because of my time at Kansas sitting out the year and watching a team go to the national championship game. 
then having terrible heartbreak my junior year, losing in the second round, and then going to going to a Final Four and really leading a team to the Final Four. Those are all something things that I'm really, really proud of uh, because of my experience at Kansas. And and having seen it from the other side of, of from coaching and, and coaching in modern basketball where it's tougher to get those guys. Like if 2021 Rex Walters is a junior, you're going pro, right? Like I'm not saying you specifically, but I'm saying a player in your shoes, the coach is probably saying, hey man, you're a top 10 pick. All these scouts are saying this, you test the waters. As a coach, how do you, how do you factor that into roster construction and recruiting, knowing that it's just so difficult to find guys who have that talent who are willing to come back. I mean, Ochai for Kansas is great, but he wouldn't have been a top 10 pick last year. He's turning himself into a lottery pick this year. That's fantastic. And there are, those, those guys are few and far between. I just imagine for a coach, it's got to be really difficult waters to navigate and try and build these championship teams or find the guys who care as much about winning in March as they do wanting to further their, their basketball career in the pros. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, Bill does a phenomenal job of roster construction. If you look at the guys, people will say, well, Kansas is not turning out as many high profile pros. Well, they, they got two in there right now that played in the all-star game and Joel and bleeding and Andrew Wiggins. But for the most part, he hasn't had great, great NBA players besides those two. But that's because I think Bill does a great job in the evaluation. Of, okay. Who, who are guys that we can develop? to be NBA players, right, that will be around two to three, hopefully four years, right, and develop those guys into being potential NBA guys. He does a, a really good job of that and not necessarily getting your, you know, he's, he's had a few Josh Jackson, Andrew Wiggins. Nobody really knew about Joel Embiid. He did a great job in the value staff, did a great job with the evaluation of that one because no one had him at that. But he does a really good job. You know, to me, it's always the same stuff. Like if, if I get a chance to coach again, it's going to be about, you know, toughness, intelligence, and then skill. And, and, and so if I'm at a lower level, and I didn't always do a great job of this at my last, my, my first two stops, and I've had some really good players, but my favorite players were those three things. They were tough, they were intelligent, and they were skilled. So I think that that's the one thing as coaches, you got to really look for as opposed to what Eric Bossy, what these recruiting guys, and I love Eric. Eric's a, you know, I like Eric a lot, but I'm not going to trust a recruiting guy, right? Recruiting service to do the evaluation for me. I'm going to go watch a kid. I want to see if he's tough, right? And I'm talking about mentally tough, can play through fatigue, uh, can handle difficult situations, how he handles those situations mentally and physically. Uh, is he is he smart? Does he make good decisions over and over again? He's not just going to physically overpower people, right? But he's going to use, he's going to play his, the game with his mind. He's going to have a really good basketball IQ, right? Those are really, and then is he skilled? Can he pass? Can he handle? Can he shoot? Those are really important things. And I think that Bill does a really good job of it. The, the really good coaches that have sustainable programs, your Gonzaga's, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm um, partial to the West Coast Conference. Randy Bennett does a great job of that at St. Mary's. Davidson does a great job of that. Obviously, Coach Williams does a great job of that. He has a higher level of guys, but I think that his great teams, he had that. Uh, you know, Coach K can go out and get the best of the best players, but I think his best teams have been, you know, your Christian Leitner, and he was those three things. Tough, 
smart and skilled. Um, Grant Hill, tough, smart, and skilled. I think that those, those are the type of players that give you a chance to win championships, either on the national level or in your conference. So um, those are the things I think that, that good coaches spend a lot of time trying to evaluate as opposed to just how fast a guy runs, how high a guy jumps, and can he just physically overpower. You, you like those guys too, but I think those other three things are really important as well. It sounded like, based off something you said there in the answer, you still have a little bit of an itch maybe to get back into coaching. Is that real? Do you still feel the itch when you're calling games, whether it's FS1, Westwood 1, that, and I... I wish I was over there on that sideline. Well, I, I'll say this. I hope I don't come off as too coachy when I'm calling it. Because it becomes a part of who you are, yeah. right? You look at the game, maybe, and I've done it as both a player, right, now as a coach and now as an analyst. So I'm getting three totally different perspectives. And in the, in the, as a player, you don't understand all that the coach puts into it. Then as a coach, you got to put yourself in the best position possible for your players your program, your university. And now as an analyst, you're just analyzing, right? You're just figuring out the game and, and trying to explain what you see. But I mean, th- there's a part of me that still would love to coach. I didn't like the way it ended at San Francisco. I thought my last year at San Francisco, I coached my tail off. We, we got beat by San Jose state in an exhibition scrimmage by 30. I was like, we might not win ten, two games this year. And, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you, I made some mistakes as a young coach that I really learned from. So I would like an opportunity again to show the things that I've learned, right, and really impact players in the positive way and, and lead a program to compete and win championships. I'm a competitive guy, but I love what I'm doing right now. I do. I, I really enjoy calling games. I enjoy watching other coaches coach. I, I love watching and trying to break down a team to prepare for a game. Those are a lot of fun. So if it doesn't happen, I'll be okay. But – you know, there's a competitive side to me that, yeah, I mean, I would love to, to, to take some low mid-major program and turn it into a powerhouse. Uh, we were really close at San Francisco a few times. I think because of my competitiveness, my players went from low major players to mid-major players, and some of them became high major players and transferred. And that really set our program back. And so uh, I would like a chance to, to, yeah, I would like a chance to, show that I could get it done at a very high level, compete for championships. But like I said, if it doesn't happen, I can call games. I can act like I'm really smart and never lose a game again. There's nothing wrong with that as well. That's right. It's worked out very, very well for a lot of former coaches turned analysts and using the analyst job to get coaching jobs again. So um, best of luck in whatever the future holds for you. I'd love to do it again, Rex, because this was a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Uh, Nick, Nick, thanks for having me, my man. Best of luck with your show. Scott Pollard, former Kansas and NBA big man. It's been a while since we've caught up, man. I'm excited to talk to you. I think it's been since the uh, 2018 Final Four, since we've had a chance to catch up. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, I want to get your thoughts on Ochai because I, I feel like I do this whenever I'm doing a podcast episode, whether I'm talking to a former player or analyst. I feel like I, I, I sort of always ask the same sort of question, but it's always interesting to me because Ochai's the guy that, I think is sort of a cliche that never happens. When we always talk about kids who are thinking about going pro and fans will always say, no, come back, you know, come back, get, get better, improve your draft stock, make more money. You'll, you're not ready for the league yet. We say that a lot of times and guys come back and they don't get any better and they're in the same position they were. They're just a year older. But Ocha is sort of the exception 
he is he's the guy who who did that, tested the waters, came back, and has turned himself into a completely different player. And it's been so fun to watch. And as somebody who's obviously went through the NBA draft process, had a long successful career, and has rooting interest in Kansas, I'm just curious how fun it's been for you to sort of watch the evolution and his growth this year. Well, first of all, I've, I've been out of the league since it's made the transformation into what it is today. So I, I do have to say, I don't know much about the NBA at this point. Uh, I don't care to know much about the NBA at this point because I don't like the way they play. Um, but what I do see, I hate to see because it trickles down into college basketball and down into high school basketball and down into the kids because it, that's how it works. That's always how, that's how it always has worked. The thing about Ochai's game that I respect is that he has a mid-range game. He's not just coming across the, the court and shooting up a three every time he can because he can't. He's, done, he's got a mid-range game. He goes to the basket. He hustles. He dives. Uh, he plays defense. Uh, he's not a one-dimensional player. And if anything I'm an expert on is being something that's not a one-dimensional player, it's being able to do a lot of little things that can prove value to any NBA franchise. Because I don't believe uh, Ochai can come down and be a Steph Curry kind of knockdown shooter. Not that anybody can. I know Steph is a generational talent. But he's not really tall. He's not super athletic. He's very athletic, but he's not like a freak athlete. Uh, like a Ben McLemore that just got up there and just hung around mm-hmm. and waited for people to throw the ball, and then he would grab it and dunk it. You know, Ben's athleticism and Ben's willingness to do little things is why he's stuck in the NBA, because I will stand corrected, but that's why he got in the NBA, in my opinion, because you can't just be just a great athlete. So when I go back to Ochai, I'm sitting there going, okay, he's not the greatest athlete like a Ben McLemore. He's not tall and athletic like an Andrew Wiggins, who's an absolute freak in both of those departments at six, eight and his ability to run and jump is just, it, it's, he's a generational athlete, but Ochai is going to have to get into a franchise. If he's going to make it in the NBA that needs a guy like him. I love Ochai. I love his development. I think he's gotten a whole lot better this year and he's gotten more well-rounded this year. And I'm glad he came back for Kansas's sake, but also for his sake, but it's still going to depend on which team he gets taken to. And he's going to have to be a guy that's happy coming off the bench and doing all the little things that he's done now that's made him successful that's gotten to the league. Because at some point, we all get weeded out. There's only about seven or eight actual superstars in the NBA. The rest of them are role players, every single one of them, whether they think they are or not. But that's how you stick in the NBA. You realize early on, I'm not LeBron James in this, in this current time period. I'm not Seth Curry. There's those generational, just incredible players and then there's all the rest of the players that think they're one of them, but they're not. And they get traded around because they think they're that guy, but they're not. And they won't fit in with that guy. The best players in the NBA that stick are the ones that realize they're not that guy early. Take all of those talents that got them there, use them to the best of their abilities, and also have a franchise that likes them. And it fits with their overall uh, motif. So he may bounce around a little bit. He might get the right pick the first time you've got to figure out who you're going to be with and how you can stick in the league because then you're your own corporation. You are, you're, you're self-employed at that point. You're employed by the NBA, but you're self-employed. If you want to stick, you got to figure out how you can stick with this franchise. And if they don't fit, you, you hopefully get cut or traded and you get to a franchise that does want you. And that happened to me. I got drafted by Detroit. They didn't need me. They didn't want me. They just were scared that somebody else was going to get a steal in the draft. And that's why they picked me. 
And then they traded me when they first had a chance. And I ended up with Sacramento who wanted me and it was a great fit. So with, with role players, and I'm not trying to knock Ochai at all. I'm just saying on the NBA level, if he's going to make it, he's not going to be one of those superstars. He's not a generational talent, but if he's going to stick, he's going to stick as, as a role player. And I hope that he's got that. And it seems like he does have that mental ability to make that adjustment from being superstar, superstar. It might end up being one of the players of the year, if not the player of the year in the country. And then he's got to reset his mindset and go back to being a role player. I want to pull on the string there a little bit because when you talked about just not enjoying where the game is at or not enjoying watching the game, if you were to sort of summarize kind of what it is that has turned you off to the NBA, what is it to you? I like it when players have a great position and they know how to play that position and they're not trying to do everything that everybody else can do. I love it when a guy on an NBA team is a great three-point shooter and that's all he does. And he's the best three-point shooter or one of the best five best three-point shooters in the world. And I played with some of them. I played with Reggie Miller. I played with Ray Allen. And I played with Peja Stojakovic. And I'm not putting them in that order. I'm not ranking them. But those are three of the best ever, though. That's what they did. And I loved playing with those guys because they didn't try to come in and steal my rebounds. And they didn't try to get me to shoot threes. What they did is they let me come and knock their guy on his ass. And if they were open, they would shoot the three. And if not, I would roll to the basket. They'd throw it to me and I would dunk it. Or if they happen to miss, I'm there doing what I do best, which is setting the screen, going to the basket, getting an offensive rebound and tipping it in. So that was my role. I loved roles. I grew up playing a role and playing a position, not a role, a position. Uh, and I was a read and react player. So when I see seven foot guys trying to dribble up the court and getting ripped every time or trying to uh, come down and just pull up at the logo, like, yeah, great. You're shooting 30% from the three-point line. Wonderful. I'm not impressed because I'd rather see somebody make it 40 to 50% of the time. And I played with those guys. So my expectations are high. I just hate it when I see seven-foot guys not getting around the basket and mixing it up and having post moves. LeBron James might be the best post player in this NBA right now. That's ridiculous. He's great. I'm not saying he's not. But there's way bigger guys and there's way stronger guys that, are, that should be in there challenging someone stop me, like Shaquille O'Neal, like Dikembe Mutombo, like Greg Ostertag, for Christ's sakes. I mean, people that could just get in there and go, you have to guard me. You can't leave me alone in here where you can leave me alone on the three-point line. Porzingis is out here shooting threes. The unicorn, I wish I had his talent. I wish I had his height. I wish I had his abilities, everything except for his mentality. Because me, I would be faking the three-point and dribbling my ass to the basket and dunking on everyone in the world because he has that ability. He is that talented. But he doesn't have the mindset because he just wants to play his game. And that's fine. Again, not judging. He's way more talented than I ever would have been. But that, my, my problem with the game today is it seems as though so many players want to have every role instead of being a better teammate and making their team more successful because they have one role that they do. I could have shot threes. I, I shot one. I'm the leader That's in two-point actually, history in Kansas. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, nobody can beat my percentage at Kansas. I can shoot threes. 
I could have shot threes. I shot two in the NBA. They were both last second heaves, so I missed them both. But, uh, you know, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. Just because you can dribble the ball doesn't mean you're the point guard. You know, you can get out of traffic and get, get you know, make sure you don't turn the ball over, but it doesn't mean that, that, that you're Magic Johnson. You know, that was a generational freak, and that's why he's Magic, and everybody knows that name, because he was almost my height, but he was a point guard. Point forward, he, he, he invented the position. You know, so if you're not that guy, if you're not LeBron James, you can actually play every position. If you're not Antetokounmpo and you can play every single position, then play yours. That's my problem with the game today, and I'm sorry I went off on that, but that, that's it. Uh, with everybody trying to do everything, you get a scattered effect, and it's not really that pleasing to the eye, even though they're scoring 140, 150 points a game sometimes. It's not that entertaining. I want to talk about, because you were involved in obviously the most infamous, but you weren't involved, I guess I would say. You were present for the most infamous sports brawl ever. Alice at the Palace, and with the Juwan Howard Greg Gard incident from this past weekend, which I'm I'm sure you saw. What was sort of your your general reaction to that? Not just as a, an observer, but as somebody who has played. Now you are coaching, and you're watching this guy Juwan Howard, who had a long professional career, is not part of that quote unquote coaching fraternity that you would think of in college basketball. And just sort of seeing not only how that played out, but the ripple effect it had on the players and maybe like how quickly that could have gotten much, much worse. Well, first of all, it was, it was bad on both coaches. It wasn't just Jawan, it was Bard, it was the head coach of Wisconsin. I don't even know his name. Guard, yeah. It was Bard, okay. Or guard, whatever. Um, and then he hit the assistant coach, right? Yeah, it was like an open handed slap sort of thing. Whatever. As a former player, I get the emotional investment in coaching because when you're a player, there's a certain level of emotion. And then as a coach, you're a little bit detached from that. But when you're a former player that's a coach, it's hard to differentiate your emotion as a player and what you see and what you perceive uh, and what you would have done as a player versus what you should and have to act like as a coach. I will admit that I'm not the best at, diff- at, at separating those two. And that's why I don't coach at any higher level. I coach rec league and I have my kids and I've coached all of them. I know I'm a player. I'm not a coach. I know that I get emotionally invested in the games, even when they're rec league. Uh, so I find it very difficult to separate myself from what a player would do. I can kind of see how it was hard for him to disengage from what a player would do in that situation when somebody grabs his arm in a, in, a, in a player's situation, a player mind, somebody grabs your arm post-game. No, don't do that. Don't. I'm giving you a handshake. I'm walking by. From the other coach's perspective, he's probably trying to say, hey, man, I'm sorry. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he's trying to explain, hey, this is why I called the timeout. You're still playing, pressing hard, whatever. That's why I called the timeout. I just wanted to stop you and explain it. But let me say one thing further. I think the handshake line after every game, anywhere, anytime, is the dumbest, fakest show of sportsmanship in the history of athletic competition. You should never force anyone to shake hands after a game. None of, no one on either team, none of the coaches, none of the players, no one cares. It has become a formality that looks good on TV. No one cares. 
when you force people to do things they don't really want to do and they're not inspired to do naturally, you, it leads to situations like this. I want to get to a few KU questions here before I let you go because you've been great with your time. Um, but I don't think I've asked you anything about your time at KU, which I always like to because you're a good storyteller and you played on some damn good KU teams. Just as an aside, for a team that that didn't win a title, because we know at a program like Kansas, to really to stick with people's minds and to go down as one of the greatest, usually you got to cut down nets. And you guys never did that. But yet, that team in 97 is still, 25 years later, thought of as one of the greatest Kansas teams of our lifetimes. How does that make you feel, knowing that you guys didn't, I mean, accomplish ultimately everything you wanted to yet, decades later you're still sort of revered in that way that very few teams get thought of well it's it's bittersweet right i mean when you're a part of something that's that special and people talk about it years later it's an honor it's an honor to be a part of that and it, and it, it is special it's truly a gift uh to and it's a testament of your hard work and your dedication to your craft and your teammates and your coaching staff and we all earned that we all earned all those wins and that that aura around that team and it truly was a team effort, and it's no secret. We've said it millions of times, or at least I have. Our second team would have beat a lot of teams in the first, in, in a lot of starters uh, in that league that year because we had an incredible, from top to bottom, our first 10 were incredible, and, and everybody on that team was incredible. Our walk-ons were good. So, um, you know, that team was just stacked from top to bottom. Our reserves were great. When people were hurt in starting five, our reserves came in and we didn't hardly miss a beat. We still beat people. So it wasn't just like it was just the, the you know, the two lottery picks and, and Rafe and Paul that were eventual lottery picks. You know, it wasn't just that talent that was the starting five. It was the whole team and the coaching staff. I mean, everybody really contributed. Jock was injured the first part of the year and Ryan Robertson filled in and we won every game. <laughs> we didn't lose one with Ryan as the starting point guard in Jock's place. So I can go on and on about that. So it's an honor. It's an honor to to be recognized for all that. Uh, But it's bitter uh, because we didn't win it. And when Bill Self won it in 2008, I was at the game, uh, and I got to see him after the game, and I I went up to him. I said, hey, man, thank you for all of us that coulda, woulda, shoulda, because that was the year I was on the Celtics, and that was the only time, and, and my career was over at that point. I wasn't even supposed to be at that game. I had had uh, surgery on my ankle. I wasn't supposed to be traveling. I was in a walking boot. And I said, hey, am I going to get fined if I'm gone? And they said, don't know what you're talking about. And I just left. (laughs) And I flew down and watched that game live. And I got to see us beat North Carolina. And I got to see us win the championship and and have a party in my my hotel room, uh, which some of the players may or may not have come over to our hotel room. Uh, But it was – you know, a vindicating thing for me when, when KU won it in 2008 because we absolutely, everyone on that team uh, in 96, 97, that, that was our goal. That was our thought process to go back to what we were talking about earlier in this, this episode, Nick, is, you know, the continuity, the players that stuck it out. Jack came back. Jack was going to be a lottery pick after his junior year. He was 100%. Yeah, I was just about pick. to ask you that. Was did you guys know that you were bringing... Because you guys basically ran it back after 96 when you lost to Syracuse in the Elite Eight. Was there, was there a question as to whether or not guys were going to come back? Oh, yeah. I was roommates with John. We were roommates all four years. And I didn't even know if he was coming back. 
And I told, I told him, I was like, hey, man, if I'm you, I'm going to get that money. I love you, and I don't want you to leave. I want you to come back, and I want to get this ring for Roy. Because that, that was what our goal was. We all want to be Roy's first championship. We all loved Roy to the point, at least as far as I know, everybody wanted to get Roy his first national championship at Kansas. And so that was our driving force. And, you know, Jock, he could have left. And, and, and again, if I was him, I told him, I, I'd be gone. Uh, I would have left and got that money. Because you never know if you're going to be an NBA dra- uh, pick the next year. You might get hurt. And what happened? Jock broke his wrist in a pickup game, you know, we're playing summer league or summer ball, just pick up basketball and he gets knocked down and lands on that shooting wrist and that bone doesn't heal. And, and it took forever. And his wrist was never the same. His shot was never the same. It never was the same as it was before. And it hurt his draft stock and he ended up getting picked in the first round still, but he wasn't a lottery pick. And so Jock more than anybody sacrificed by coming back and we owed it to him now that like we added that to the list. I told him, I said, well, you're back now and then, and you got hurt. We owe you. We owe everybody on this team, but we owe Jock and we owe Roy. And so it was, there was a whole lot of emotion in that locker room when we didn't win, when we lost in the tournament to Arizona, that there was a lot of tears. And if I think about it too hard, I'll start crying right now. So I'm going to stop. All right. I don't want you to cry. I don't want you to cry. I want to end this on a positive note then, because you just kind of slipped something in there that I think is really interesting that I haven't heard anybody say in a long time is that you guys were playing because you wanted to get Roy his first title. And it's a different era now to where I'm not sure how many guys are out there currently playing saying we want to, we want to get our coach their first title, but that's something that you guys were thinking about. But who also had you and Jacques, who had been there for four years at that point. Rafe would have been a junior. Paul would have been a sophomore. A sophomore. Um, and I've heard, we've talked about this in the past, how influential Roy's presence was on why you went to Kansas and uh, the relationship with your dad and him sort of filling a void in your life. And I wonder now, like if you're a recruit right now, are you thinking about the coach the same way that you did when you were a 17, 18 year old kid back in the early nineties? I don't think in basketball, but I would think in football because football, they tend to not transfer as much. They tend to be red shirted to get bigger and stronger in the, in the non-skill positions. Uh, and so those type of players, those, those linemen type positions, I think that they tend to think more about the coach or at least the coaching staff uh, more so than say somebody that is thinking I'm going to be there for a year just because I have to, and then I'm going to be gone. Um, and I, I will tell you a uh, quick side note to that. You know, it still took some convincing in 2011 to get Paul Pierce to come back to Lawrence, Kansas. And I know I've told you that, but I want your audience to hear that, that it took some convincing. And I called Paul and he said, I don't care about Kansas. I care about Roy Williams. I went to Kansas because of Roy Williams. So it just kind of goes back to that. We were all committed to Roy just as much or more than we were committed to the University of Kansas. And again, Nick, I can't answer that for these kids nowadays. I don't know. But it would appear to me, and it would make sense to say a 17-year-old that's thinking they're going to be a one-and-done as far as basketball is concerned, they're going to go to the place that's going to get them on TV the most times. They're going to go to the place that's going to get them that NIL money, hopefully. And they're going to go to that place. It's going to hopefully be their leapfrog to the NBA because they're not thinking about school at all. 
And now, again, I'm generalizing, but there's a whole lot of guys I know and I loved and I played with that their careers were ruined by that mentality. And so I'm hoping that things kind of change because of the NIL money. And I hope that it keeps more of those players that it could absolutely destroy their lives uh, and they end up worse off than they were before if they go one year and think they're going to be an NBA tra- first-round draft pick and then they don't get picked and then they end up in overseas or here or there and they bounce around and it's not for them and boom because they didn't get to the goal they thought, which was, I'm going to be the first pick of the NBA draft. And there's thousands of those type of players that think they're going to be a lottery pick or at least a first-round pick, and they're not. And so, again, I'm hoping that the tide changes. I hope the mentality changes. I hope parents get smarter and start to realize that these mistakes that some of these players are making and so that they can give a better education as far as life education to their children and teach them that, hey, you know what? You may not be going to college to get a degree in this and, and get that job. You may be going to college to get, become a basketball player. But if you think about going to college, you might as well think about going for all four years and becoming a man or becoming a woman, uh, depending on the gender of your child. And go ahead and enjoy and become an adult. And if the next level works out, that's great that would be wonderful. And that would be, you'd be less than a one percenter, right? It's half a percent that's going to get drafted in the NBA. I, it, it shocked me. I found out a year or two ago, somebody told me, and I had to look it up. There's only been about 4,000 NBA players ever, ever. I was like, wait a minute, I'm one of them. And first round picks is less than that, obviously. And I'm one of them. So, you know, it, it doesn't happen. So you got to, as a parent, you have to look at your kids. Again, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to tell parents how to parent their kids, but I would like more parents to, to understand these things so that they can have a, a little bit more fun watching their child play when they're 8 to 12 uh, or younger, 5 to 12, and let the kid make the decision if they want to get serious and become a gym rat or become somebody that's going to work out all the time because you waste all this time on travel sports and money on traveling here and there and private trainers and all that stuff. And then the kid burns out and they're in high school and they're like, I don't even want to play anymore. And I've seen that too. And it sucks. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I had so much stuff prepared to ask you and I got to about, I don't know, 5% of it. I don't know. The same, I'm a talker. No, 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 no. I got to, I got to the same percentage of the, the one percenters, right? The guys who actually get drafted. So it's a, a fitting way for us to end this. It's always good to catch up with you, man. Uh, we need to do it more often because I always enjoy talking to you. So thank you so much, Scott. Let's do a part two or three, man. Thanks for having me on, man. All right, that's it for this one. We'll have another episode coming out on Wednesday morning. We'll have another great guest. I think you guys are really going to like that one. Also, don't forget Wednesday night, Jayhawk Talk Radio from 6 to 7 o'clock on 610 Sports Radio. If you can't catch it live, we'll also have that episode podcasted right here on this feed. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you haven't, please subscribe, rate, review. Thank you so much for your time. We'll see you next time.
Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 